0: counterpunch radio my name is eric draitzer thanks so much for tuning in and coming back to the show first time listeners finding the show welcome aboard always happy to have you hey have you gone over to counterpunch plus get that subscription support counterpunch we've been around for 30 years or so we'll be around for at least another i don't know 130 maybe 330 more years and become the longest standing periodical in the history of the printed word, who knows? Go over to Counterpunch, get a subscription, help us keep the lights on. We have a fun drive going on right now. What a great time to show your support for Counterpunch, to keep this great content coming. Go over to the website, do what you gotta do, make it happen. Um, And speaking of people who make it happen for Counterpunch, we have ourselves a glorious special visitor with us today. It is the editor of Counterpunch, Joshua Frank. Josh is here to talk about his brand new book, Atomic Days, the untold story of the most toxic place in America. Josh is a great guy. Josh is my pal. He's your pal too. Hi, Josh.
1: Hey, Eric. How's it going, man? Doing well. How are you? Doing all right. And just a little little quick edit. Uh, I'm only one of the editors of Counterpunch, so, so people don't think I'm the only one running the show. That's... The Jeff, generous of you. Jeff, uh, Jefferson
0: Clair. Jefferson <laughs> never heard Jeffers, of him.
1: Yeah, no, no one's heard of Jeff or, or uh or Nath St. Clair either. So never There's heard of, of him. Who us. the hell yeah. are they? Yeah, exactly.
0: All right, Josh. Talk to me a little bit about this book. Talk to me about Hanford. Um, actually, before you talk to me about that, talk to me about what it is. What is Hanford? Where is it located? Why is it important? And obviously, why'd you write a book about it?
1: Yeah, uh, well, Hanford was the site that was chosen during the Manhattan Project to be an outpost for the nuclear weapons uh, industry. Basically, it was uh, chosen um, because of its remoteness. It's it's located in eastern Washington state. It's along the Columbia River. And so it's sort of out of sight, out of mind uh, for a lot of people, And um, it had access to water. The climate was nice. And so they decided to seize this land. They stole the land, of course, from uh, indigenous communities that were there. Also some farming communities that they moved off the land. uh, And they built this gigantic uh, facility that produced plutonium that went into the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki, the Fat Man bomb. Um, and then during the Cold War, uh, Hanford was the go-to site for plutonium that was used essentially in the entire arsenal or the majority of, of the nuclear weapons that uh, in the United States. So um, that's what it was at that time. But now um, it is the largest environmental cleanup in the world. It's the costliest environmental cleanup in the history of the world. And it's probably the most toxic site in the world, absolutely in the Western Hemisphere. No, I don't think there's any comparison. Um, and it's a boondoggle. It's a taxpayer boondoggle. A lot of people don't know about it. They don't know about the devastation of what was left behind because of that plutonium production. And they do not know the risk that it still poses to this day uh, to the environment Um, and also they just don't understand anything about what it's doing to their, their pocketbooks and how much money is going into this thing. Um, so yeah, I wanted to shine a little light on that. I wanted to, um, kind of expose the history of it uh, from, from, from sort of the grassroots perspective, uh, and then also just fast forwarding all the way to today of what, what we're dealing with. And, and, uh, so, so that can be a little bit more accountability, hopefully, um, and give voice to some of the people there that are working on a lot of important stuff. Uh, So I think it's a really important uh, subject, and, and hopefully this book adds to the conversation a little bit.
0: Well, you and I have been having a conversation about a lot of these issues going back quite a while, well before you had the book uh, completed. And I want to ask you a little bit about one of the things that you've mentioned to me just in our own conversations. And I know you've brought it up with other people talking about the connection between Hanford and what we might call the permanent U.S. war economy. Can you explain how Hanford really represents something of the military industrial complex and the nature of the U.S. war economy?
1: Sure. Well, I think it, in Hanford's context, it's it's important to understand the uh, that without Hanford, the town of Richland would never have existed. Richland is just a stone's throw from Hanford. It's where all of the scientists and engineers um, were live. They lived uh, during the Cold War, um, and essentially, it was created because of the Hanford complex. And to today. Um, it is home to where all of the contractors live and that work on the cleanup. Um, and, and none of that would exist without government contracts. None of that would exist without Hanford. Uh, so in, in that regard, it's, it's completely a, a creation of the military-industrial complex. Um, Hanford, of course, was in the, the, the bomb-making business, and now it's in the in cleanup business. And um, it's all a result of the weapons proliferation from the United States uh, so it's, I think in that context, it's really important to understand that, um, uh, that without government funding, um, it wouldn't exist. And then, of course, because it is a nuclear site, was a nuclear site and is a, a nuclear cleanup site, it is highly uh, secret. Um, there are a lot of uh, people that live in around that area that have no idea what's going on there. Um, and that's for you know it's, that's by design the department of energy is is in charge of the cleanup um, but really the cleanup is carried out by contractors that are really not very accountable bechtel is the big contractor at hanford and bechtel uh, has a real shoddy track record and of course they have uh, profited enormously from the u.s government uh, military ventures and otherwise all over the planet um, of course we can talk about what their you know the contracts that they got in iraq uh that they never fulfilled um so you know it's it's uh it's part and parcel for the pay to play politics uh of this government and Hanford is a, a you know a gleaming example of that i mean the the project itself right now the estimates for the cleanup which really have no end date is uh listed at 677 billion dollars um it's just a totally astronomical, the, the amount of money that's being poured into this project, just about five years ago, it was only half that much. So the, the costs keep going up. Um, and the waste uh, continues to sit where it's always been. Um, and there are right now, the biggest problem is there's 177 tanks that hold um, 56 million gallons of radioactive waste. That's literally bubbling. These tanks, in most regards, were not meant to last more than 20 years. They're going on 80 years. So, you know, it's a big problem. Um, and again, yeah, it's it's a lot of money that's being poured into this, trying to figure out what to do with all that waste. And uh, not much has happened in the past uh, 30 years since it became a cleanup.
0: So, yeah, I mean... I'm thinking about it. Correct me if I'm wrong, Josh. I think it was 1987 was the end of production at Hanford, so it's like yeah. 30 35 years or so. So now, how is it that for 30 years the price tag is what it is, and then in the last five, all of a sudden it jumps astronomically? What accounts for that?
1: <laughs> well, I think what accounts for that is that as they figure out what well the, the, at, at the beginning of the process, they really just had to figure out well, okay, what's what do we need to do here? I mean, and actually, like, what's left? What's the mess that's left? And and a lot of uh, they didn't even actually know everything that was there. Like the the whole site itself is a toxic waste dump. Um, so that the first the first order of business was just figuring out what kind of problem they're dealing with, and the second order of business is figuring out what to do with all of this waste. Um, and they've had different ideas over the years of what to do with the waste. There's a there's a process called vitrification, which is essentially to turn this waste into glass, and then they're going to go and store it, um, and that seems to be the best method. That's the method that they've been pursuing. The, the waste treatment plant, which is the plant that's going to be utilized to vitrify this material, uh, is in the process of being built, um, and that has been... Cost overruns, cost delays, technical problems, a lot of research going into the design of that, and as we've seen, the costs have been going up and up and up as it gets more and more complicated. Um, and so that's where we're at right now, um, and that's why that that price tag is sitting there. And and I mean, I don't even that's not even accounting for the inflation of the last two years. So I can't even imagine what you know what the next uh, government accountability report's going to come out with as, as a, a number for what it's going to cost to remediate this site. And I think it's important to understand, too, that it's nuclear waste. So remediation is really just like keeping it safe. It's not necessarily ridding it of this toxic material. The toxic material hopefully will be housed in a safer facility um, and not be leaking into the groundwater all around or potentially uh, leading to a hydrogen buildup that would become a, an atomic explosion, which is a um, of, of real likelihood as I, as I write about in the book, um, a DOE scientist went on record talking about the possibility of this happening and he's very concerned about it um, and and what that would do to the local economy of the Northwest, what that would do for the entire country. Uh, there's cities like Boise and other ones would literally become in, uninhabitable. Uh, radiation would be everywhere. Um, and then, of course, what it would do to farmland and other things. And I'm sure that, you know, there's no doubt that the the uh, radioactive smoke and debris would spread across the country, um, all the way to the east coast and beyond. Uh, it would be it would be unlike anything the U.S. has ever experienced. So, you know, there's a very scary and real possibility. So, it is important that we get this waste in a in a you know in a form that isn't going to pose those same risks. But of course, with all nuclear waste, the, the risks really never completely go away.
0: Talk to me a little bit about oversight and control of uh, Hanford. Who's in charge of it? Uh, what about the politics around it? Local politicians, is this even an issue locally? Is it not even discussed? Um, what is the political context within which
1: Hanford is situated? Um, well, the Department of Energy is in control of the cleanup, technically, um, as a lot of uh Scientists and engineers have told me, both those that have worked as a contractor side and those that have worked for the Department of Energy, they really believe that the Department of Energy is completely understaffed um, on the Hanford project, that the tech, most of the technical staff is on the private side. Um, so really, Bechtel and the other contractors run the show at Hanford, and the DOE is kind of always playing catch-up. Um, and that creates a real problem, because w- without the DOE having the right and proper staff, um, it's it's hard to hold the contractors accountable, right? Because the contractors are the ones that kind of run things. Uh, Richland itself is, it is a government town, but it's really a contractor town that's, you know, exists because of government contracts. So the town itself, it's, it's a very conservative town. It's, there's n- more PhDs per capita in Richland than anywhere in the entire country. Uh, it's a highly educated town, bunch of scientists, bunch of engineers. Um, and so I think the environment is very insular. You know, I think that it's a very conservative uh, rural community, um, a little different than other rural communities of the West because of its, you know, education. Um, but it is still, um, you know, a, I would say it's a culture that still looks at the atomic history of this country in a positive light. I think that they really still look at uh, the scientific and, um, engineering ingenuity that went into the making of this bomb, and they they cherish that, um, and they they celebrate that. Uh, so that you know, it's it's an interesting kind of uh, experience to go and be in Richland and to you know, I, I toured the B reactor, which was the first um, operating plutonium reactor in the country, and they've set it up as sort of like this atomic museum of, of sorts. And there's no there's no recognition of the uh, victims of you know our n- nuclear arsenal or our nuclear bombs in Japan or or even like the toll of what are the nuclear proliferation did to Hanford itself, which is right there, you know. Instead, it's a you know a <laughs> it's a monument to the U.S. military machine. So it's 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 a very interesting um, dynamic, and and I think. I think in order to uh, justify what happened, they can't look at the, you know, the toll that this this whole operation has caused.
0: One of the things about Counterpunch that I appreciate always is that we uh, try to focus on the environmental side and also the social side of these kind of issues. So talk to me a little bit about both of those. You've mentioned leaking into the groundwater. That raises the question of the local indigenous people and indigenous community. Can you tell us about them? How far are they from the site? How uh, at risk are the indigenous or even other local communities outside of Richland? How at risk are they of uh, this toxic? pollution entering into their
1: water or soil or what have you yeah well historically you know this was hanford uh was it's along the columbia river columbia river was a salmon uh you know a bastion of of salmon fish um and for for generations and luckily they have held on despite the the dams up and down the columbia river Uh, but they're suffering and and So I think the Hanford project is just an extension of more of development um, along this area. But the Yakima in particular have been very active in the cleanup process, in particular, Russell Jim, who passed away a few years ago. uh, He was perhaps the most significant indigenous elder that Really became dedicated his life to the Hanford project and and to giving voice to his people, which he he did. And there's actually no because of the work that he did, there's there's no big decision that can be made uh, about Hanford without the voice of the Yakima Nation. Um, so it's very significant. He he fought along with others to stop uh, more nuclear dumping to happen at Hanford. That was in the the 80s. Um, so it's, it's, you know, there, there's ongoing, uh, work that's being done in that regard. As far as the pollution goes, uh, during the production back in the sixties the and seventies throughout the eighties, you know, they were dumping, uh, n- chemical waste all over the place. Uh, the water was being pulled from the Columbia, to cool reactors. There was plenty of leaks, um, salmon and other fish all the way at the mouth of the Columbia um, that was dumping into the Pacific Ocean. There was found to be radiation. I mean, the Columbia River itself is a radioactive river. Of course, it could be much, much worse. Um, but these big hulking tanks that are leaking currently are buried just underneath the ground. Some, in, in some cases, just a few miles from the Columbia River, and they pose an incredible risk to the Columbia River. The the river is. Um, the lifeblood of the Pacific Northwest in, in many regards, it, it is, um, you know, there's commercial fisheries along the Columbia river, uh, irrigation feeds, you know, hundreds and hundreds of farmers. Um, you know, so if, if there was going to be even a bigger accident or if the leaks become even greater, and, and currently there is a tank that's leaking, they're letting it leak because they don't have an answer for what to do with it. I mean, it's, it's, it's complete it's a complete mess, um, and it's a and it's a threat to the entire you know economy and to the environment of the Pacific Northwest, um, and that would of course impact the entire country if, if things were to get worse. One
0: of the things about nuclear uh, nuclear facilities that it's so insidious is that it's often difficult to pinpoint the uh, cause and effect between the nuclear facility itself and some of the let's call it anecdotal information we get about cancer rates and other forms of illnesses and diseases and other things for people that live in the vicinity of this This is famously here where i live in the hudson valley you know indian point famously in the area around indian point people have been saying for decades that it was seeping into the soil that it was making people sick elevated thyroid cancer rates etc etc so what if any um uh, studies have been conducted in regard to the health effects on the people in the area, or is it because it's such a, it's a government site and it's so high profile that maybe we don't
1: have that information? Yeah. Uh, well, definitely when it was up and running as a nuclear production site, as a plutonium production site, uh, there was, you know, the, the studies were few and far between. Um, a lot of the qualitative studies that were were being done um, found really high rates of, of certain cancers, particularly thyroid cancers. Um, but because it was uh, being used to produce plutonium for nuclear bombs, it was highly secretive, right? They didn't uh, talk about really what was even going on at the site. So there was no real studies being done. Um, but a lot of the indigenous communities around there, um, some others uh, talk about how high the, the rates of cancers were in their, in their areas. Um, And to this day, um, even Russell Jim, who uh, talked about the high rates of cancer in his own family, which is one of the reasons why he got so involved in Hanford in the first place. Um, So but unlike, you know, like a lot of of other nuclear accidents, you know, it takes a long time to really understand the full toll that these kind of things have on a population, because Many times they don't just happen overnight. You don't just get cancer the next day. You know, it it, it takes years to develop um, and it's bio bioaccumulates. Um, so it takes a while to manifest itself in your body. So those kind of studies take a lot of money. They take a lot of time um, and they are often not done. And it's unfortunate because I think um, if they were, we, we would know a lot more and, and question a lot more uh from the nuclear booster side of things, that because <laughs> as as you know, um, there's a lot even on the left now that are looking to for nu- uh, to nuclear power as an as an answer to climate change. Um, but of course, I would caution that it's it's foolhardy to do so.
0: Oh yes, we're going to get to that in a minute. But um, let's finish up with uh, talking a little bit about Hanford. Um, Fukushima was eleven years ago, and. Fukushima was kind of in, at least in some ways, it was an important moment because it highlighted the danger that I think a lot of people had put out of, you know, sort of out of sight, out of mind after, you know, Chernobyl in the 1980s or whatever. And I think Fukushima brought it forward, uh, you know, in, in the front of people's minds again. And so my question is, how come, how come Hanford hasn't had A similar impact? Is it because there was no high profile incident, but rather just decades of uh, use of this facility and decades of mismanagement? Is it because this was a government project? Is this because it was not an energy facility, but a weapons facility? What do you think explains the difference between something like Fukushima or Three Mile Island or Chernobyl and Hanford?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you kind of answered part of that, uh, I think first and foremost, it was a secret site. Uh, there was, it, you know, the accidents that did happen there and the potential accidents that happened, which I write about as well, there was very nearly huge accident that could have resulted in, you know, the whole thing <laughs> being exposed um, and killing thousands of people and having a, a hor- horrible explosion, which actually we can talk about too, it did happen at a sister facility in Russia, which a lot of people don't know about uh, called MIAC, um, which had an enormous toll. Um, and it was the plutonium site there that exploded uh, and was probably the, I think registered as the third worst nuclear accident the world has ever experienced. And most people haven't heard of it. Um, similarly at Hanford, people don't, didn't know it was even going on there. There was nine nuclear reactors that were there. Um, and produce all this waste, uh, but I think that's the number one thing. It's it was a secret site, and then the secondly, there was no singular accident that happened um, that would have caused this kind of alarm. Um, instead, it's it's a slower process. It's a slower understanding of the the wreckage that this area has become, um, and that. I think it's important for people to understand that it, there doesn't have to be a singular accident for it to be an enormous problem. Um, and of course, it doesn't rule out that an accident's not going to uh, happen in the future, even though it's not producing plutonium. It's still a ticking time bomb. Um, so I think it's really, really important uh, that people understand that uh, it, 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 it still poses an, an insurmountable risk, even though there hasn't been a singular sort of Fukushima event there.
0: Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to finish up talking about Hanford and talk about what you just mentioned, Josh, about, uh, you know, some of these debates that we now have on the left, even about nuclear energy and whether nuclear is a path forward in the context of climate change. I want to touch on that. I want to touch on the environmental impacts from the mining side, because that is often also ignored for the uh, nuclear boosters. Anyway, that and a whole lot more with Joshua Frank. And co-editor of Counterpunch. We will be right back.
2: Nuclear war. Yeah. Nuclear war. Yeah. Talking about yeah. nuclear Wall. Nuclear war It's a motherfucker Don't you know Talking about Nuclear war Talking about Nuclear war It's a motherfucker Don't you know If they push that button, your ass got to go. What Don't you know? If they push that button, your ass got to go. They're talking about it. nuclear war. They're talking about it. nuclear war. If they push that button, your ass got to go. Your ass got to go. Push that button. If they push that button, your ass got to go. Your ass got to go. If they push that button, if they push that button, your ass got to go. Your ass got to go. Bless you. Bless you. So high in the sky. So high in the sky. Gonna bless you. Gonna bless you. you. So high in the sky. So high in the sky. Kiss your ass goodbye. Kiss your ass goodbye. Kiss your ass goodbye. Kiss your ass goodbye. Kiss your ass goodbye.
0: And we are back chatting with joshua frank the book atomic days the untold story of the most toxic place in america get it wherever you get your books but really get it from counterpunch do that all right uh josh i want to talk a little bit with you about um nuclear well nuclear weapons but in the context of uh nuclear power because one of the things and you mentioned this before the break josh one of the things that we've come up against even on the left now is the idea of nuclear uh, technology as being something of a salvation uh, with climate change and the impending catastrophe, human civilizational catastrophe that climate change represents. And I want to ask you quickly if you could just explain for us the way in which it is foolhardy in a sense to try to separate nuclear power from nuclear weapons I would argue these two are inseparable and you can't have one without the other so how do you see the connection between those two
1: well I mean historically uh, nuclear power came out of the Manhattan Project essentially that that nuclear technology that was originally set to produce, you know, nuclear bombs, nuclear power was, came out of that, all of that technological advances. Um, and in places like the United States and in France, and France in particular has the largest nuclear uh, facilities in Europe, the weapons industry and the nuclear weapons industry and the nuclear power industry are intricately le- linked. You, you, The funding for one funds the other. Uh, Macron uh, recently even boasted about this fact that you can't have one without the other that the nuclear power of france supports the nuclear you know (laughs) weapons of france and it's the same in the united states Um, and it goes all the way down to the the fuel fabrication for uh nuclear bombs comes out of you know nuclear uh, power reactors um so at a scientific level they're connected at a financial level they're connected uh when it comes to the major nuclear powers in this country or in the world. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of links there. And there has been historically, and there will be continued to be in the future, which I think it's really interesting when you talk, especially people on the left, that they are, oh, they'll easily dismiss nuclear, all the the problems with nuclear power. And they say, oh, well, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. Well, I don't think that any of them ought to ignore that if you actually, you know, oppose nuclear weapons, uh, then you can't, you have to, uh, as a result also oppose nuclear power um you can't have one without the other it'd be sort of like opposing the pentagon but you know su- supporting the war on terror or whatever you know it's like you can't have one without the other and it's that that's the case with nuclear power and nuclear weapons at at a atomic level and then also you know at a government level
0: But they say, Josh, they say, oh, it's completely different science, it's completely different sets of engineers, it's completely different problems, completely different A, B, C, and D, right? They will... They will work very hard to convince people that you can be supportive of nuclear energy without supporting nuclear
1: weapons by saying the technology is completely different. So, Josh, how are they wrong? They're wrong because in reality, that's just not how it works. It's 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 never worked that way, and it doesn't work that way now. Um, nuclear proliferation has been largely dependent on the nuclear power industries and tax dollars that go into that uh, from, you know, like I said, like the te- from the technological side of things to the financial side of things. And, the, and, and also I think it's really important to understand that um, nuclear power produces uh, things like plutonium. Plutonium is a fuel for atomic weaponry. Uh, so you have, it will always be controlled by the government because the byproducts of nuclear power can be used in nuclear weapons. Uh, so they have to have that tightly guarded so that, you know, Other governments don't get a hold of it or terrorist organizations or what have you. So uh, the government will always be involved uh, in the nuclear power industry and there's just no way around it.
0: But the argument I hear most often is, well, of course, the government is going to be involved in it. And that's why we need to democratize nuclear power. We need to have democratically organized uh, 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 governance over nuclear power and the generation of nuclear power. And uh, if only we could uh, democratize nuclear power, that would solve all the problems.
1: (laughs) Well, I would argue that if we democratize the coal industry, it's not going to reduce all of the problems with coal either um it's a it's a it's a silly argument ultimately um and really what it gets down to i mean i think i've laid out i actually written a a piece about you know the case against nuclear power and i think there's a number of reasons why people ought to oppose nuclear power Uh, for me personally um, it has to do with the waste Uh, nuclear power produces waste that will last up to 250,000 years what are you going to do with that waste? How are you going to keep that waste safe? A lot of the proponents say, oh, well, these new smaller reactors won't produce as much waste. Well, they still will produce a lot of waste. And if you if were ever to have as many nuclear plants as we would be required, uh, it's going to produce a heck of a lot more waste than we produce now, which we still don't know what to do with. Um, and are you going to you going to bury this stuff? Are you going to keep it safe? How, how are you going to keep it uh, secure so other Governments don't get a hold of it, or terrorist organizations. How are you going to keep these plants safe? How are you going to ensure that um, you know that they aren't ever going to come under attack? I mean, we've seen what's going on in Ukraine and and what kind of risk that poses. Uh, this nuclear waste at a place like Hanford, for example, constantly has to be cooled. If if the uh, electricity goes down and uh, to somehow uh, you know these these tanks can't continue to be cool, you're going to have, a, you know, you're going to have a, a horrible reaction. Um, there, it's, it, there's so many problems with the waste that just there's there's no fix for it. It, it is a byproduct. It is, you, similarly, you can't burn fossil fuels without having carbon emissions. You can't produce nuclear power without having all this nuclear waste. Um, and I think that's really important for people to understand. And I think it's also really important to understand that this stuff lasts a very, very, very long time. I mean, it just put it in perspective, humans have really only been roaming the Earth for, what, like 50,000, 60,000 60, years. Uh, what are you, you know, we can't keep waste at Hanford, say, for 100 years. What are we going to do for 1,000 years, let alone 250,000? So, uh, you know, these are really big problems that the, the boosters really don't have an answer for.
0: All throughout uh, this summer, we've saw uh, rather jarring images of rivers in Europe, rivers in China, rivers and lakes and reservoirs in the United States going dry, water levels dropping by tens, dozens, hundreds of feet in certain situations, and it. It, it's, it's almost laughable when you see all of those images and then you hear people arguing in favor of expansion of nuclear power just for the water use alone. The amount of water required to cool these uh, reactors is astronomical, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, look at France last summer during Europe's crazy heat wave. Uh, most of the power nuclear power plants in France went offline because the rivers were too hot to cool the reactors. So they had to take the reactors offline, which meant they lost that electric- electricity. <laughs> so, you know, they're also, that means that the nuclear power is not reliable. It, it can't survive in this kind of environment. And of course, as we know with climate change, uh, rivers are going to continue to heat up. And in some cases, you know, you're going to have rivers that no longer exist. So, you're, you know, nuclear power is going to be obsolete. You can't You can't have a nuclear power plant without having access to, you know, really cold, uh, ample water supplies. And uh, I think just last summer is a perfect example that, um, you know, it's not a reliable source of energy.
0: Now, one of the other things that always comes to mind when talking about these issues, and you and I have talked about them a lot of times, but I think for some people, they might not think through all of the implications because you hear like, oh, everybody wants, you know, luxury space communism or whatever, limitless resources, limitless development, you know, in all in all walks of life, we'll never want for anything ever again. And then you actually look at the real costs of all of this. For instance, strip mining indigenous lands to extract these uh, rare earth minerals and uh, nuclear, ener- you know, nuclear minerals that are then used for uh, enrichment, etc. So, can you talk a little bit about the indigenous uh, uh, effects here, and what in particular indigenous lands have to have to uh, deal with when it comes to nuclear uh, energy?
1: Well. In the United States, the Navajo, the Diné, uh, their lands have been the target for uranium mining in this country. Um, And then I think it's also important that most of the sites that have been proposed, Yucca Mountain in particular, um, is uh, sacred ground as well. um, And that's been proposed as a nuclear dumping site. So in this country, nuclear proliferation has impacted indigenous communities more than any other. There's no question about that. from the mining to the waste, uh, and there's been a lot of you know some of the best activism uh, is happening um, at that grassroots level, uh, and and I think it's really important for people on the left to understand that you can't have nuclear power without uranium, you cannot produce power without uranium. Even the reactors that they don't call uranium reactors still need uranium to produce nuclear energy, um, and that. Uranium comes from mining operations. Those mining operations are some of the most toxic, deadly mining operations in the world. Um, There's, uh, you know, there's the ore that is mined that has uranium has to be extracted. That extraction process in particular requires a lot of energy to extract that uranium. Where does that energy come from? Fossil fuels. So uh, the, the other thing we hear a lot from the, the pro-nuclear crowd is that, oh, well, look, it's nuclear power doesn't have CO2 emissions, so it's a godsend, right? Well, actually, no, you have to look at the entire life cycle of these plants from the construction uh, onward. Um, and and most of that carbon emissions that come with nuclear power comes at the mining levels. And there are a, a quite a few scientists that when they look at this uh, entire you know life cycle, of of uh, nuclear plants say actually surprisingly for some perhaps uh, nuclear power produces more carbon than natural gas of course natural gas also produces methane and natural gas is horrible Uh, but i think that's interesting uh you know to to look at because uh, one of the biggest things they they throw at us is that they're carbon free well they're not they 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 require a lot of energy uh at the mining level and that's before you even get into you know digging trenches and uh burrowing holes so you can store your waste in the future i mean that that's like not even accounted for um so yeah and and again going back this this happens on indigenous lands and in the u.s it happens on Dené lands in particular because that's where most of the uranium is in this country
0: And we bring it up to make the point that when people try to present nuclear power as a path towards a more egalitarian, maybe not utopian, but more egalitarian, more just, economically just society, we have to keep in mind that it, at the same time, is replicating all of the same cycles of oppression, dispossession, pollution, uh, destruction of na- uh, native lands, destruction of sacred lands, etc. All of those things that we read about in the history books—that is part of our shameful history—that is being reproduced in, you know, in service to uh, economic development and energy needs.
1: Yeah, that's right, and. You know, I'm not not I'm not going to sit here and say that uh, solar doesn't have problems. It certainly has problems, um, from the mining to building huge solar farms, which I oppose. Uh, but none none of that is anywhere near the problems that come from nuclear power. None of them. Um, and so I think you know we need to have an honest discussion about that and try to reduce those risks. Um, I think the other thing that's really important to understand is. Uh, I think that the left and environmentalists um, need to call for a decentralizing the grid. We we can't rely on these big producers to, uh, you know, allow, you know, have huge solar farms or a, a nuclear plant. Uh, we need to be putting solar on rooftops. We need to decentralize the grid. We need to give power back to the people. I absolutely support that. Um, and, the, it, it, you know, there's... In a place like California, where I live, uh, the PG and E really fights this. Right, SoCal Edison really fights this. They don't want the uh, power to be sold and operated at the community level. They would rather, you know, hold the keys to that. And as we've seen, you know, how many forest fires were caused because of downlines that PG and E can't maintain. You know, that you know, solar solar on rooftops doesn't cause the same kind of problems. Um, And nuclear obviously doesn't it doesn't answer that as either it, you know, you you can't really, truly decentralized nuclear power, you're not going to have a no one's in their right mind would allow small nuclear reactors to be on every street in their, you know, in their town, it just isn't going to happen.
0: One aspect of counterpunch that I always have valued even since long before I was a contributor to counterpunch is the fact that it really has an eye towards the tradition and, and and legacy of left activism and i i really believe that the uh, anti-nuke movement particularly in the <laughs> 1970s uh in the 1970s and the early <laughs> 1980s that the anti-nuke movement yeah the dog agrees you see what i'm saying the dog <laughs> agrees that that the anti-nuke movement really was in some ways the most successful Mass movement that the left has produced in the post-war period, you know, I mean, along with civil rights, I suppose, and the uh, anti-war movement in the Vietnam period. I mean, the anti-nuclear movement is in many ways one of the high watermarks for the left in that period. And to find us coming full circle in this way to where people on the left are genuinely questioning whether uh, anti-nuke voices are just insane tree-hugging hippies or something, can you talk a little bit about the legacy of the anti-nuke movement and the importance of uh, understanding its place in history?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right on. I mean, I think um, at least since the, the anti-Vietnam era um, the, the anti-nuclear era really took hold in the late 70s. So in many regards, I think it was the most successful movement uh, that it, it existed in the last whatever that is, you know, 45 years. Um, the, the, in going back and looking at some of the real early civil disobedience protests, uh, the Clamshell Alliance, I think it was formed in 1977 to fight uh, plants development in, in New Hampshire um, in California, the Abalone Alliance was was formed to fight uh, Diablo Canyon, um, and Diablo Canyon, of course, did end up going online. However, after Diablo Canyon, there was no more nuclear power produced in, in, in California, and that was largely because of the direct action that these um, activists took. Um, and, of course, then it, 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 things got after, after Three Mile Island, Three Mile Island um, things really just exploded all across the country, and then we had Chernobyl, and then after Chernobyl, um, there essentially was you know a, a mass movement against nuclear technology across the globe. Uh, but but none of that really would have would have happened had it not been for those early activists that were taking on and concerned about the the nuclear power industry. Um, and then of course that ended up linking up in the '80s when there was a increase in, in nuclear weapons production um, that the nu- anti-nukes uh, joined forces, anti-nuclear power joined forces with the ne- anti-nuclear um, weapons. And uh, they were largely successful at stopping um, all kinds of plants from being developed all over the country. They were uh, largely responsible for th- trying to end nuclear proliferation, um, which, you know, arguably they weren't as successful at that, but, Yeah, I think it's important to, you know, from from a left perspective, I I look at the history of these social movements and the left shouldn't be trying to tear them down. I think that we should be trying to build upon their successes. And it is really disheartening to look at some on the left that perhaps don't understand uh, the victories that have come before them um but and some that do want to destroy it and think that they were they were wrong uh for moving forward and and i've heard i've heard arguments say well they if they wouldn't have opposed all these nuclear power plants we wouldn't have coal production you know they'll throw these kind of arguments around and they're they're ridiculous arguments because coal was always cheap coal was king long before nuclear and it was it was king for a reason because it's really inexpensive nuclear is very expensive. And globally, um, a lot of countries n- simply would never going to afford to go nuclear. Um, that's why India and Vietnam and China, that's why they all were producing, you know, have coal plants. Um, so, it, you know, there's it, arguments are ridiculous. Uh, but can you imagine um, if we would have had more nuclear plants and the risk for more accidents uh, in this country? I mean, we've already had um, all kinds of, of accidents in the short amount of time that nuclear plants have been operating in, in the world. And um, some of them were, you know, a, a, quite a few instances where nuclear accidents were narrowly avoided. And and uh, I write about some of that in, in Atomic Days as well.
0: Exactly. And my point in bringing that up, just as you say, Josh, is to point out that, you know, the activists who were engaged in this work in the late 70s and into the 1980s, they understood far better than many of these left uh, these people on the left today how intertwined these things were, that an environmentalist perspective was an anti-war perspective. It was a pro-peace, an anti-World War III perspective, that these things were so intimately linked as to essentially be activism on, on, on both issues simultaneously. And I think that today we 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 oftentimes find that people have a, an extremely myopic view where these issues are all atomized they're not connected to each other they exist independent of each other and here's the nuclear energy guy and over here is the peace guy and over here but these things are connected aren't they
1: yeah they're absolutely connected you know and i think this conversation changes a lot if tomorrow there is a meltdown or something horrific happens at Zaporizhia in in Ukraine, um, if the you know if it gets shelled, if somehow the backup generators fail, uh, you know I nervously look every day to see what the latest information is coming out, and you know it seems like it's offline, it's online, it's offline again. There's information, then there's not information. I think the the most recent thing today was was that uh, Russia is giving the Ukrainian workers at the facility an ultimatum: um, either you're for us or you have to leave. Uh, So, you know, it's a frightening, frightening um, scenario. And it's the first time that a nuclear plant has been in a war zone. Of course, the United States has targeted uh, early development of plants, but not an operating plant like this has never been in in the line of fire. And it's uh, it's a really, really frightening um, development and I think a new phase in uh, warfare. I mean, Taiwan has a few uh, nuclear plants? What if Taiwan becomes the next battleground? Um, What's going to happen there? I mean, I think um, this conversation would change dramatically if there was a meltdown at Zaporizhia. And I think a lot and I, of course, um, I'm I'm very fearful of that. Um, But I I think people need to be cautious about about, uh, you know, what when they're talking about promoting nuclear technology of, of what that really does mean for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, and of course, it's not like uh, climate change could potentially pose a threat to these uh, plants, right? It's not like Fukushima was devastated by a natural event,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I think if you if you look, I'd have to go back and look at the numbers, but uh, you know the the uh, UN has come out with some projections of what it would look like, how, what the risk of an accident is at a nuclear facility, and it's something like one in a thousand, but when you look at actually the accidents that have happened, a facility has a chance of an accident like one in 50. It, it, so it's it's that's in my book, that's just far too great. You don't see the these kind of risks would not pose even the most polluting of energy plants don't pose these kind of risks in a, in a war zone. Um a solar plant certainly doesn't a, you know, a coal plant doesn't even natural gas doesn't. Yeah. They would cause problems, but nothing like a nuclear meltdown. And, and, and if something were to happen at the plant in Ukraine, it's also not just going to impact Ukraine, depending on the trade wind, the winds, it could, it could impact a large portion of Russia as well, which of course Putin knows with. So yeah, it's a very dangerous situation and I do not think any, it should be taken lightly. Yeah, I mean,
0: I, I was thinking just uh, what was it, five years ago was Hurricane Harvey in Houston. I mean, all of that rain that then flooded those fertilizer plants and those chemical plants that then dumped all of that like toxic sludge that basically, you know, polluted the entire city until it was uh, cleaned up. I mean, these kind of things with catastrophic category five hurricanes basically every year moving forward. I mean, I can only imagine just the limitless possibility for disaster that would await.
1: Well, and look at, in my home state now, uh, Diablo is up and running and it's going to be extended. Its life is going to be extended because of Governor Newsom and the state legislature, uh, even though it had been agreed upon five years ago or whatever to shutter it. Um, And that uh, had been uh, negotiations by PG&E and unions and the environmentalists. uh, Yet here, Governor Newsom comes along and says we got to keep this thing up and running um, and at the time that it was agreed to be shuttered uh, there had been a really large study done that showed that replacing the energy produced from Diablo would cost about five billion dollars less than it would cost to just keep the thing running um this this doesn't even talk about the fact that Diablo sits on a fault line what in, on the coast I mean w- there is absolutely no reason to keep it up and running it poses a great great risk. It's costing us a lot of money. Um, And I guess it just shows that the Democrats certainly are not on our side when it comes to nuclear power.
0: Well, although we've spent a lot of time talking about fairly depressing uh, information, I do like to try when we're talking about these kind of subjects to focus on something constructive. So Josh, talk to me a little bit uh, in the couple of minutes that we have remaining about uh, what activism is going on on this front these days I mean we talked about the anti-nuke movement of several decades ago but I know that there's all kinds of direct action activism going on now uh, we've had guests on this show in 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 the not to uh, you know in the, in the recent past who talked about you know direct action to stop uh, fracking development to stop pipeline development uh, you know Keystone and the uh, Dakota and so forth so, what about nuclear development? What about nuclear issues? I know there's been activists with direct direct action uh, with regard to the mining on sacred lands in New Mexico. So tell us a little bit about what's going on there, and give us something hopeful.
1: Yeah, I you know I think with all of this nuclear talk that's happening, as you know that a lot of I think you, the younger generation hasn't experienced. You and I grew up during the Cold War. I think we. Both were aware of the threats of of nuclear weapons, um, and now those threats are being tossed around again. Um, And it's really important that I think people get active. Um, The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICANN, is very active in trying to fight to ban nuclear weapons uh, across the globe um, and reduce proliferation. Um, At the local level, a lot of communities are fighting against nuclear technologies. Uh, In a place like Hanford, which I focused on, obviously, um, there are a number of groups that are working on the issue. The Columbia Riverkeeper is working on the Hanford issue. Um, Hanford Challenge, which is in Seattle, is working on the issue. These small organizations really do need a lot of support. Um, At the local level, I think it's really important for people to uh, look at what their Congress people and what they're supporting. Um, What kind of money are they pouring into weapons development? Uh, Are they, are they supporting the war in Ukraine, for example? And what does that look like? You know, what, what, what does the language even look like when it comes to nuclear power? Uh, A lot of these politicians have no idea that the, you know, the kind of risk that nuclear power pose. Um, So I think it's really important for people to get active at the local level, And um, from an environmental standpoint, uh, but also from an economic standpoint, because we should be pouring our money and our research into technologies that already exist to solve the climate problem, not ones that we know um, cost a bunch of money and have failed in the past. Um, So, you know, I uh, I want to be more hopeful. I wish I could, Eric. Uh, But, you know, you can't have hope unless there's action and we need more action. Um, And, uh, you know, Counterpunch knows that. Our readers know that, our listeners know that, um, but a lot of others don't. And, um, you know, things aren't going to change unless we get active.
0: What'd they say back in the 80s? Get active or get radioactive.
1: <laughs> I like that's a good saying. And I, I think we might have to bring it back.
0: Now, there's a Counterpunch t shirt. That's the next one. Get that active is- or get radioactive with the little CP logo on. Oh, it. I
1: love it. I love it. Well, you know, speaking of ways to support Counterpunch, Uh, We do have some really great T-shirts. We do have a no nukes T-shirt that's in the mix right now. If they go to the store, people can pick that up. Um, And uh, it helps support the work that we do. And and a lot of the writers that we publish, we we publish a ton of investigative stuff of what, you know, Fukushima all the way to, you know, what's happening in Ukraine and the, the problems that nuclear proliferation poses to the entire world.
0: The book is Atomic Days, The Untold Story of the Most Toxic Place in America. The author is Joshua Frank, co-editor of Counterpunch. Great guy, great author. Go get yourself a copy of the book. Maybe go over to your local independent bookstore and see if you could get them to order it for you and maybe carry it in that store as well. Anything to avoid Amazon if possible. But Joshua, thank you as always for coming and chatting with us. Thank you for this great book. So important and so timely with all of these debates on the left. So thanks for that.
1: Thanks for having me, Eric.
0: Listeners, thank you as always for the continued support. Go over to Counterpunch, get in on the fun drive. We really appreciate it. And as always, we'll talk to you next time.